Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm here with Eric Franchi and Jay Friedman, the CEO of the Goodway Group. Jay, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So the Goodway Group uh, is an agency. Uh, it's a kind of a pretty differentiated agency. Do you want to tell us just real quickly what it is? Yeah, of course. Uh, Goodway Group uh, is really a Goodway Group of companies. Uh, we have three brands, uh, CVE or Control versus Exposed, Goodway Group, and then uh, Tough. And that really takes us from the kind of light consulting market all the way through down to strategic planning and and you know media activation all the way to like UX and SEO, LPO kind of stuff. So yes, that is good way. Awesome. Yeah, I, I thought it'd be really interesting to have you on because you have some interesting ideas about agencies and technology and a lot of other things. So, but to get started, I wanted to ask you about something that I always found fascinating as you and I have met at various events, which is that Goodway has been a remote only, remote first, remote only company for over 10 years. So why don't you tell us how you manage having a sizable agency that's entirely remote? Yeah, no, we're about 550 people now, and uh, we, we've been entirely remote, you're right, since about 2010. You know, back when I, uh, I I went to a fortune teller and they told me about the pandemic, I, I decided we should probably just get going on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, um, but, you know, back in 2010, digital talent was really hard to find anywhere. But with, you know, our, our origins being in Philadelphia and me having been in Dallas for a long time, you know, it was just very challenging to find a significant enough volume of highly qualified talent. And so, and while we were willing to do some training, we really wanted to just hire the best that we could anywhere that we were. And as a result, uh, we started hiring remotely and building that kind of company and culture. And uh, yeah, here we, here we are today. But Jay, so there, you have been remote first or remote only for even longer. Like you, you might've been like the remote work pioneer. Actually, I don't know that I've ever worked like in my entire career, I don't know that I've ever worked. Yeah, maybe once I did, but um, in the same office as the people that I had to work with. So I started out at oh. YNR, uh, and I started out YNR Detroit, but I was supporting the Denver, the LA, the San Francisco, the Dallas office. And this was, you know, like pre Facebook. So I didn't know what any of them looked like for like six months. Yeah, you think about that today. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> and then, you know, when I moved to other companies, they either had multiple locations or, and so I really have always been in a place where I'm working with someone remotely. So when I came to Goodway in 06, I just naturally, it really was no problem. So how do you manage 550 people remotely? So everyone's online all the time, no offices, and then you get together every once in a while? Yeah, twice a year we get together. We have very specific goals and objectives when we do get together, mostly around building connections and improving the work. Yeah, when we get together, it is a it is a big party. I think, you know, obviously having one at age's best place to work this past year, which was phenomenal. There's some testament to our ability to build a good culture, both remotely and then make better connections when we get in person. Best place to work, but there's no place. Yeah. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. You know what? Place is a construct. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the best non-place to work. I hear there's a funny story on how you found out that they were remote first. You know, I, yes, uh, th there is a funny story. I don't know exactly how or why this happened years ago when we were doing Undertone and, and Jay was a, was a customer. Um, you know, I was always on the road and planned a trip to Dallas and, and planned a trip to, to meet Jay. I don't know how this happened. 
But basically, I didn't even know that he was um, working from home at the time, let, let alone remote. But I got his address. Maybe it was from like an insertion order or something like oh, that. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, see, you see where this is going. So, you know, call it 30-year-old thir- me. <laughs> you know, I was probably in a, in a suit with hair gel. <laughs> he knocks out of this guy's door. <laughs> hey, is J-Hope? Yeah, it is an introvert. I'm just mortified, right? I, I show up at the door and I'm like, no, no, you can't be here. <laughs> a picture of your wife saying like, Jay, there's someone here to sell you an I.O. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Bring the chai. <laughs> anyway. I, I definitely look like I was, I was sell, selling something. Oh, God, I can't even hold it together. But we went out to lunch and, and everything was good from there. But he was definitely shell-shocked. Yeah. This is Yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh. Let's talk about Let's talk business. Uh, so marketing time. Um, so, Jay, I mean, Goodway's been out there from the start as being a very tech-enabled business, especially compared to agency brethren. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, making marketing more of an investment than a cost. I think that's something you've spoken about a lot. Tell us your thoughts there. Yeah, well, there's a couple of angles that I would come from. So... And we can explore whichever ones you'd like. But our perspective on building tech is that we want to build tech that differentiates and is of high value to our clients, but not build tech that essentially just replicates what else is in the market just so we can call it proprietary. So we're really, really careful about that because I think there's it's easy to go off on an ego tangent of like, yeah, we built this, but if it's not differentiated on a value. So that's number one. And then number two, I think measurement and of course, measurements becoming more and more important uh, with cookie lists right around the corner. But measurement is just such a vital component. And so we've had data science teams from very, very early on trying to work out better ways to measure and attribute credit. So those are really the two ways that we have thought of things. And uh, as a result, I think, you know, I think we're coming up with insights that help our clients uh, more than they have in the past. Does it increase their spend? Or is it make sometimes it decreases their spent when when you tell them better stories about attribution? Yeah, so that's actually like when I meet with clients, and you know, oftentimes you know people in my account services group are a little you know horrified that I say this, but my goal is actually, and I think I think the world is best off when marketers are spending the least amount possible to achieve the highest level order. I mean, there's a there's a point on that slope of diminishing returns where the CFO should be able to more or less pinpoint and say, I want to spend it here, but I don't want to spend after that because that next dollar is better invested in a facility or in a new hire or in something else. Sure. You should continue spending on marketing until the marginal uh, NPV of the uh, of the customer you attract sinks below the acquisition cost. I mean, that would be the logical thing to do. It's just hard. Sounds better in theory than in reality. I think the capabilities of the market are much closer to the reality than most of us practice. Let's put it that way. It's not that they're perfect, but I think they're a lot closer than we practice. And I I think CFOs would love to come along the journey to better understand. And how does this relate to the concept of working dollars versus non-working dollars? We had had a long discussion (laughs) on that in the previous podcast. But it seems one of the things I've always heard is that agencies can't spend on tech because they can't bill it to anybody. Well, that's 
That's like, you know, a basketball team or something signing a better player and then saying, well, what's the use? You know, we might as well find the lowest quality players. So to me, then something's wrong with the billing model. And when marketers or procurement, when they talk to me about like, you know, well, how do you charge? I'm like, you're going to pay the same amount, regardless of whether we charge FTE, percent of media, whatever it is. You tell me how you want to pay. But in the end, here's the value we deliver and you should compare it. You should shop us against competitors because I think you'll find tremendous value, but we do have to pay for things that deliver that value. So is that a way of saying that you charge more because baked in, there's more value? I usually don't get the luxury of seeing our proposal right alongside the others. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, but anecdotally, there are times where I've been told we're less and times I've been told we're more, but it's about the promise and the explanation of here's what we're going to achieve for you. And then I want to be held accountable for that. And so I, you know, I, I think to your point about the, the working media and non-working media, I was cheering you on. Area as you were <laughs> as, as you were espousing your views to me it's not working and not working working and not working it is a uh it's media dollars and then technical enhancement dollars do clients pay for the technical enhancement dollars uh, absolutely whether and but some of those technical enhancement dollars are dsp fees by the way i mean you can go to a publisher and pay you know ten dollars cpm for display without any negotiation or you can pay a lot less, but then pay on some tech fees to help make decisioning. Yeah, that's the reality. If you choose to use a vendor, that's effectively technology fees. And you could always choose not to use those vendors. This is why I get so upset when I hear about the ad tech yep. tax. Uh, there is no voluntary. <laughs> well, no, there isn't an ad tech tax. Yeah, it is voluntary. And yeah, I mean, not only do you not have to pay for it, but if I'm a marketer, or I, I hear publishers even, and I real empathy for publishers in the situation they're in. But I hear them say like, you know, we're not getting so much of the money. And I go, no, you're getting a hundred percent of the money. Otherwise you should set your floor higher. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you said you'd sell it for three bucks. You got $3 and now you said you didn't get the money. I don't, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or potentially I've gotten $0 because, you know, they weren't necessarily participating in the marketplace that said buyer wanted to, uh, want to participate in yeah so i i think what we have in terms of it's a perception issue far more than it's a reality issue you don't have your own dsp your own vendor but is it public who you work with yeah so i mean clearly you know as the first reseller of the trade desk you know we do work quite a bit with them but we use every major dsp and depending on client preferences or, or campaign needs we do use every major dsp but i mean i, I think to the point of you know, we looked at building our own bidder uh, and we a long, long, long time ago and decided uh, really, and you were a helper in that conversation, Ari, as like, you really don't want to do that. Uh, no, you don't. <laughs> no, you don't. But what you do want to do is you want to build in, uh, algorithmically so that you're manipulating the bidder in the best way. And that's what we've done. Can you give us a sense? Because I, I know uh, that some of the stuff you do with the various DSPs, trade desk, whoever, is really complicated and sophisticated. Do you want to give us some color on the sort of things that uh, you do? Yeah. So I, I think a lot of people look at demos, for example, as like, you know, 25 to 54, you know, where tw someone who's 25 years old turned 25 two days ago is in the cohort and someone who turns 25 in three days is not yet in the cohort. And the reality is, and I'm sure you know this from all of the work that you've done, that really every user and every impression even 
just represents a probability of conversion. Right. Okay. And so what we try to do is we try to just simply look at based on the client, based on the category, based on historics, and then based on campaign goals, what's the probability conversion and how does that map to the price that we believe is going to be required to win the bid, whether it's display, mobile, video, whatever. And then we just, we essentially make decisions based on that. The two outcomes I think that are really beneficial, number one, we don't bid static, which really only leads to publishers, you know, soft flooring you or hard flooring you. So that's number one. And then number two is that when you work out the math, you kind of always end up ahead because, I mean, you might bid a dollar, but it was a low probability anyway. And if you're going to bid the, you know, $50 on video, it's such a high probability it's going to lead to a conversion. You're you're very safe. But how do you do that when you don't have the bidder? Like, it sounds great to uh, estimate the probability of conversion on every auction, but that's usually what the DSP does. So how do you do that in, in, when you're using somebody else's DSP? Well, I believe there are vacuum tubes. Um, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ada Lovelace gave me some great advice. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I obviously don't, I don't code. So uh, I don't know exactly, but I know that we often run our algorithm tests against other DSP algorithms. And uh, what I've told the team is like, you know, if the DSPs ever get good enough to beat us, that's a good thing. It saves some cost on our side, but so far that's not been the case. Yeah. So you're 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 firmly in what some people call the custom algorithm crew, like the the people who believe in custom algorithms. Yes, is that is that a good characterization? Yes, we've A/B tested it to death, honestly, and because there's nothing I'd like more than to not have to keep supporting that. But the reality is, is it's needed in the market. We do bill for it, and uh, and customers actively want to pay for it, right? And so. And when I say there's nothing I'd rather do than not support it, it's more that I wish the market could have what we have for everybody. It, I'm happy to keep supporting it for our own good. Right, right. And, and do you think that it seems like you, you've been out there doing this innovative stuff for a long time. There are some others who also are doing that. But but the majority of digital agencies are not doing this sort of thing, That this user scoring, API-driven technology, custom algorithms, most dollars spent on programmatic are not flowing through pipes that have those features. Do you think that's going to change? Or do you, do you agree with that characterization? I, I very much agree with the characterization. I think we're going to have to see where the Google thing ends up because I think, you know, within Google and DV360, it's obviously more limited. The amount of, it's not unavailable, but it's limited around how much can be done. And the reality is Google has like the world's best data set that's ever been compiled. And so I think it'll, whether or not it changes will depend on some of these Google outcomes over the next couple of years. Do you mean divestiture? When you say the Google outcomes, is that what you're talking about? Divestiture or or other, you know, compromises and settlements. I see. Yeah. I, I would be, I'd be kind of a little shocked if the outcome of the DOJ was that they had to offer custom algorithms. I, I can't, I'd be a little surprised if that was on the table. Uh, you know what? I, I think I think that is a, a our custom algorithm would would rate that a very low probability. <laughs> <laughs> Have you just switched to telling your clients it's AI at this point, or were you always telling you it was AI? No, I I think you know the whole what is AI and what is machine learning and what is none of those. You know, I think most of what's going on in ad tech today is is rules based. But let's just focus on results, and and the marketers can can spin things how they want. 
I, you kind of touched on this at the very beginning, but I want to get back to it, which is if you're investing in tech, how do you decide which parts? Like what what stops good way from building a creative server or a, or a DCO or maybe you have those things. I don't I don't know. But no. you know what? How do you make an investment decision, yay or nay? Uh, we look at where our clients are and and what is what are the largest blockers or potential enablers for them to reach their goals. And then we look at and we say, okay, again we're we're kind of math oriented and we go out there and we say, well, this DCO does you know seventy five percent of what they need. Um, and so for us to go build something from scratch for the extra 25%, uh, is really not worthwhile. And so that's really how we decide on the tech is on a fairly universal basis. Cause as you know, building tech within an organization like ours, it's easy for it to become a distraction if it's not managed correctly. Typically we would rather have bespoke companies that are building these things but yeah, when it's really not happening and we see an opening, then I guess we go ahead and build it so long as there's the ROI on the table. Gotcha. That makes sense. And so what's hot? Like, what are you looking at that areas to invest in either yourself or the vendors? Oh, uh, yeah. So I think that, you know, retail media is top of a lot of people's minds right now. And I think that, you know, if I'm a brand five years from now, I'm not going to have walled garden Esque reporting for each retailer. I have to have some total market impact ability. Yep. And so, you know, I, and obviously UID2 and Ramp ID and others enable some of that, but I think there's still a ways to go in some of those things. So I think that is one that is really important. And of course, that gets into managed service and self service reporting and everything else. And then, of course, identity just in general. And uh, you know, for every person that calls me telling me they they have a cookie-less solution, I haven't seen anything yet that just blows my socks off and says, oh, yeah, we're done. Problem solved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if only Meta knew about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable how many folks uh, say their solutions just work, especially yeah. Safari, and then it doesn't hold up. Exactly. What's exciting to you right now, Jay? And like, where, where, where are you spending time, you know, advising clients to, to peer around corners? I would say measurement and identity are obviously very key. And those are loud signals that are coming from the market. And so there's a response element to that. But the thing I just see literally in every client meeting is the need to better educate and collaborate with the CFO. I literally on a call this morning with a major marketer who just said, you know, it has to hit ROAS uh, of this level or it's not going to fly. And I, I totally empathize with the situation they're in, but even a lot of the MMM work that's being done right now is not granular enough. It's certainly rarely fast enough, which, Harry, to your point, that's something we've invested and built. And so because our clients need monthly at a minimum reporting, not quarterly, and they need it at more of like the ad group level, not the channel level. So I, I do think a lot of it centers around measurement. Creative, I think, is finally coming back into the spotlight. And so our performance marketing agency, Tough, has just a phenomenal performance creative product, which I'm not trying to promote them necessarily as much as I, I'm just glad that performance creative is becoming as important as it is. And then I think the other, the the final thing would just be helping marketers connect brand to performance. I think there's so many that still separate it 
but it doesn't need to be separated. It can absolutely be connected and, and the influences of one or the other can be discerned. Yeah, right. It's like there's there's common threads throughout everything that you, you just said there. Brand is performance, right? Like, like even right. if it is brand, there are KPIs that you have that you're optimizing against. It's like, um, I, I always sort of wonder why they're, they're, they're separated like that. Um, it feels like there's just a lot of education. Well, what do you do? I mean, this final you know, question for Jay before we get into the news. Like, what do you do to help the CMO bridge that gap to the CFO? Is this reporting? Is this education? Are you developing playbooks? Because it feels like that could be like a pretty cool niche to to own, frankly. Uh, yeah. And so that, that's why I mentioned like at the beginning, we, we do like consulting, right? And I, what I would say like capital C consulting is, you know, the Bain, BCG, McKinsey cohort and everything. Uh, we're clearly, we don't want to play, we're not playing in that market, but some of that like consulting is really, it is storytelling and then it's financial, you know, it's just FP&A where we can help them better tie together the metrics. And so, yeah, to your point about, you know, brand is performance. It, it's so funny because you get the search person who's delivering an eight to one, you know, ROAS. And then all of a sudden they come in and they say, I'm even better at my job today. I'm doing 10 to one. And you're like, no, I just launched a brand campaign six weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. And it's helping marketers pull that, you know, cream off the top to help then orient it toward the brand uh, value. And that comes from every channel. So that's, that's kind of what we're helping with. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, so let's talk about some of the news of the week. Um, so we were talking about retail media. So my favorite story of the week was uh, that the Gap, the the clothing store, the Gap, shut down the retail media efforts. And the reason it's my favorite story is because I'm just trying to picture what they were actually doing there. The typical retail media pitch is where a multi-product retailer like a Walmart has many, many brands who want to access their data and customers. But the brand only sells its own product, doesn't really have a lot of intent data doesn't really seem to be like the kind of brand where you'd want to see an ad on their site. So uh, it kind of gave me a little bit of a chuckle. So what, what I would say to that is, well, I think what was found is that people who like blue sweaters don't necessarily like Diet Coke uh, or, <laughs> or, or candy bars any more than the people who like the maroon sweater. No, you're right. I, I think that the folks who, you know, even like a Marriott or something, who really it's they're selling their own product and there isn't that third-party closed-loop reporting, that's going to be a challenge and they're going to have to really, they're going to have to prove differentiation at a much higher bar than the traditional retailer. There have been some pretty funny comments on Twitter over the past couple of months about like what would be the worst retail media play. Cinnabon, <laughs> I think. I think someone suggested, maybe I did, suggested Cinnabon. That would be really something. Uh, maybe Hot Topic um, or something else. But it, 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 it is, I think we, we're getting past the, uh, the peak and maybe towards the trough of disillusionment on some of the stuff. I, st- I think there's still a play here, and you know maybe their their V1 effort just you know need, needed to be sunsetted for for obvious reasons. When um, I put this in the in, in the notes, like when Connor from Luma came on, and we had that really good discussion yeah. about retail media. Like you know, there's just the need for more companies focused on supporting these companies that are trying to spin up a retail media business. And you, know, yeah. you can imagine that there's some sort of way for Gap to become part of a marketplace, part of a network, have have you know some sort of automation that allows them to I think participate in this space, maybe not go all in um in this space and you know have some sort of commercialization 
effort that's done, you know, sort of for them versus, you know, just them just being being out there trying to trying to figure this out on on their own. Yeah, someone needs to build an ad network, obviously. Uh, we answered all problems. Um, so another, <laughs> uh, so the fake news today, we're, we're recording on Thursday the 23rd, is that TikTok uh, CEO, American CEO, spent all day in front of Congress today getting just absolutely grilled on uh, on TikTok and its connection to the Communist Party and whether data is available. Probably the three of us have been watching that those hearings, but just in general, um, let's talk about the potential of TikTok being banned in the United States or forced to divest, what's the ad tech angle? What's the general privacy angle? Anyone want to take, give a hot take on this? Uh, sure. I, I can go first. A couple of hot takes, a couple of angles. So I think, number one, at the most extreme, if TikTok gets banned, then all of a sudden there's a, a, you know, a lot of dollars that need to find its way back into uh, into the ecosystem. So you know, I'm sure that there's a, there's a bump for meta and google and and amazon so on and so forth um i think snap that's too. yeah snap yeah absolutely that's number one so uh, i'm sure those folks are watching that with great interest no yep. number two is uh you know there has been um there's been some communications i think both public and you know there was some coverage uh in one of the trades or, or even maybe it was wall street journal about you know reps sending uh emails to um to customers saying don't worry and, you know, I just like every time, every time somebody has emailed or sent a public statement, like, oh, don't worry, like Silicon Valley Bank CEO. I mean, then all of a sudden, <laughs> we're not trained to worry. So I think, I don't know, like there's, again, maybe this is a little bit of, a little bit of PTSD, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a privacy expert, but you know, th- there seems to be real concerns around, uh, you know, w- w- what's happening in the background with this app and, you know, what I'm. Um, what the CT, CCP has, has access to. So I think, um, I think this is really important. I think the best predictor of uh, future behavior is when you've done exactly what you say you're not doing in the past, <laughs> or when you're doing exactly what you've done in the past and saying you're not going to do it in the future, I think it's just very unlikely. Yeah, I don't want the uh, Chinese communists to know how much I like crispy potato recipes. That's just like a real problem for me. Uh, Fair enough. But um, <laughs> uh, it just, does anyone know just off the top of your head um, what, how much advertising revenue they're doing in the U.S. this year? Estimate. I know they have seven thousand employees in the U.S. They claim, but b- ballpark on the revenue, it's, it's certainly in the many billions. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll look it up. Put it in the show notes. Another eight point seven five. So that's a real bit. That's that's a big number. That's like that's like ten twitters worth exactly. of advertising revenue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I think it's like two Snapchat worth of advertising revenue. Um, so um, it's a lot. I, I, my hot take, which I didn't, I, I didn't uh, give, which is I think what a lot of people are saying, which is this is just blindingly obvious that the U.S. needs a federal privacy law. Uh, if we had a privacy law and they were violating the privacy law, there would be an obvious recourse instead of doing this sort of ad hoc, uh, jingoistic, uh, yeah. Ban from the executive level. It's interesting if you follow it. It's worth googling. There be there's some interesting cases going on in Europe against TikTok because it seems to me like in Europe GDPR clearly applies to the use of TikTok, and uh, they're having to work their way through some negotiations of court cases. Uh, it's not as clear cut as just kicking them out of Europe. Um, it's much more of a administrative kind of activity. So I have sort of my eye on that. 
Another article that uh, caught our eye was in Ad Age, where there was an article saying understaffed media agencies turn to Google, Critio, and other tech platforms for help, which was, I'm not sure, this is probably, Eric, this is probably your little comment here, which is the procurement to marketer to agency shell game. Or maybe no, I think that was Jay, actually. All right, Jay, hit us with your hot takes, with your deep insight shell game going on here. If I'm a marketer and my agency is is saying, yes, I promise to spend X with uh, a technical platform in order for them to then put talent, literally full-time labor, into my agency, who is clearly only going to do what it can to further investment with that technical platform, then the concept of agent is lost. The concept of doing what is best for the client, regardless of you know the, the path, is completely lost. We need to break this down for us like we're stupid. Like, like, <laughs> where's the money going? So I'm, I'm an agency, you know, VP, and I do a deal with a vendor. Yep. And what, what's in that deal? I'm paying more for, for staff in some way. Yeah. So marketer and agency work out a deal, and they say we're going to pay you ten million a year, agency, to service our business. Agency uh, then realizes, holy moly, like we need eleven million in staff to really service this business the way we need it. Uh, but marketer spends, you know, $300 million a year and they tell insert platform here, Hey, we'll spend a hundred of that with you, but you need to give us $500,000 of labor and tech platform says, okay, you're going to have, you know, these three, four, five, six, whatever FTEs that will come in and we will supply them. We will pay for them and they will do the jobs that you would have otherwise hired in the agency. Right. And okay. does the client, does the end marketer or the client know what's going on, or do they just see a higher tech bill in the end? Yeah, well, I don't think they see a higher tech bill. They just see that a lot of media money went to those platforms. I see. Right. So it's working. So so it turns non-working dollars into working dollars. Is that that the the shop there? <laughs> it, it takes uh, theoretically. Well, the client is still paying exactly what they thought the marketer, what they thought they were going to pay the marketer. They just didn't know they got undersold and as a result are committing money to perhaps the right platform, but perhaps not the right platform. And so if, if you figure that maybe 20 of that 100 million should not have been allocated toward that platform, that's a very expensive way to get an extra million dollars of labor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in a sense, it's bad for the vendor, too, because the vendor now has lower margins because they're now getting fat with employees who Correct. presumably are not built out at the same rate that technology is built, built out at. Absolutely. And it's I'm sure all the math works for this quarter, but I, yeah, I don't see how four years down the road when someone has 3,000 employees stationed in a bunch of agencies, how that ends up being sustainable. I knew I was never smart enough to work at an agency. I can never yeah. figure <laughs> stuff out. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I've been saying, man. <laughs> Eric, did this happen when you were in the ad network business? Were you like, you know, throwing Ed Count around to make people happy? No, um, we um, you know, just we had so many customers that it was it was very much a like a, a, a rep centric business versus you know sort of st staffing up the opposite way uh, with customer success and you know people you know in, inside of agencies. It was very transactional. Cool. Yeah, you guys were way too successful to deal with this stuff. Um, the you know Perry on stock at its new height today. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it did. <laughs> uh, 
All right. Um, Amazon cutting some headcount again. Um, this time it hit the ads group, which was interesting because a lot of people see that as the main growth area. Um, I'm not sure there's that much of a story here. I mean, headcount reductions are continuing to happen uh, with higher rates and things like that. Um, is there any sign of Amazon ads juggernaut slowing down? I don't think so. I think uh, it's it's probably more of a right sizing than anything else. I mean, you know, they they hired at such an aggressive pace that uh, I just think like you know, sa- same as what we're seeing across across you know the, the uh, other spaces, uh, other industries. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly still driving so much growth. It's the fastest growing, um, you know, sort of short short of TikTok, l- large media seller, large digital media seller. So I would assume it's a right sizing, not not size of anything more. Jay, do you, do you and your clients see Amazon as as a retail media piece of the pie or as a viable alternative DSP? Uh, so I think it depends. It very it depends very much on the market, but I would say both, and not both as like an excuse not to answer the question. It just I, I think th- their Fire platform and and Prime Video I think is viable for anybody, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, but I think obviously their retail media play is is especially viable for anything sold on Amazon. Yeah, right. Makes sense. So uh, one thing that it wasn't in our show notes, but might be worth talking about is um, more AI news this week. Um, so Google Bard, uh, which is their answer to ChatGPT and Bing, gave some people early access. Uh, the reviews were not good, I would say, would be the general consensus. Um, it's limited languages, limited understanding, limited sort of creativity. And then, you know, ChatGPT 4.0 has come out over the past week and it's getting sort of rave reviews. And I guess the the multi-billion dollar question that people are still asking is like, will this ultimately have any effect on Google search share, on Google search experience? I, I think Eric and I have talked about it before. Jay, what, what's your gut feeling? Maybe maybe not super educated as a user, but like just in general, how are you feeling about the future of search? Yeah, so I, I think it will have an impact, but I, I don't. I mean, it's not. I don't think it's going to take it from ninety-one percent Google to ninety-one percent Bing. Just personally, and I don't have data on this, but personally, I'm finding that my search queries are probably like, I don't know, two thirds, one third, just simple information, which Google's great for, versus one third where it would actually be more helpful to get a chatbot response. Yeah, uh, it, and so, and that's where I now just use Chat GPT for that. So. Yeah, I mean, in essence, I guess Google's lost a third of my search traffic, um, and now it's a lot. But now I don't have to uh, put quotes around words that you know have to be in there, and then a minus around a word I don't want. You know, it is it is a little more helpful to talk in natural language. If there's also really breaking news, like literally within an hour of us recording, that ChatGPT announced a plugin store, sort of like an app store. Um, yeah. So you can actually in your browser use OpenTable and ChatGPT and say things like find me a table uh, that's available at a certain time with this kind of food um, and chat GPT will do the work for you, which is kind of mind boggling. So well, I, I space oh <laughs> moving fast. Yeah. I, I yeah. saw, yeah, I, I, I was like, I wasn't on Twitter much today, but I saw like one tweet basically saying, you know, so what Y Combinator demo day is a couple of weeks away. And effectively this is probably, Every idea that Y Combinator uh, startups were working on, right? Like use ChatGPT this way, so on and so yeah. forth. Um, <laughs> now with this plugin, it's like, okay, what, what are you going to pivot to in two weeks? Yeah, I, I'll say, like, Eric, to circle back to your very early question about where should agencies build tech. I, I think, you know, would I build the next ChatGPT? Absolutely not. But 
our consulting group is working to figure out how do we plug JetGPT into a client's data set and into industry research so that you can natural language query and say, you know, which uh, which clothing retailer uh, in the top 10 is also most likely to, and then, you know, tie it to uh, the customer data or, third, or or first party data or something like that. There is a use case there. Absolutely. Yeah, that is like such the 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 most exciting, I think, near term use case for for agencies and 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 those like them. I think we're going to see that stuff sooner than later. Awesome. Well, let, let's call it on that. Uh, there's a great conversation about agencies, technology, ChatGPT, uh, where where Jay lives, uh, yeah, totally. et cetera, et cetera. Um, Jay, thank you so much for being here. No, likewise. No, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. And Eric, Thanks, it's, a pleasure, it's a pleasure. Uh, for our listeners, a little PSA, please like and subscribe and uh, leave a comment and maybe even subscribe to our newsletter at marketecture.tv where you'll hear about our latest interviews. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.